0: Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kanapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I am your host James Fox alongside us. Special guest today is Jim Callis. We spent so much time getting ready for the Major League Baseball draft and it's over in a blink. And now we want to talk about the White Sox draft class specifically. Nobody better than Jim Callis at Jim Callis MLB on Twitter. Welcome in, Jim. It's always great to talk to you. I feel like we just got done talking to you, but now we're on the other side of the Major League Baseball Amateur Draft. What was your week like? How intense was that coverage? <laughs> um, Pretty intense. Um, I mean,
2: it always is, you know, because we, it's not just a draft, but, you know, with the schedule the way it is now, you throw in the High School America game and the Futures game at the same time. And then, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, same low as me, but I don't think people realize like how much prep we put into like MLB Network shows. It's not like we just roll out of bed and show up. There's like a six-hour. I think we spent five or six hours on Saturday rehearsing and doing various things. And then um, my computer like crashed, literally crashed in the middle of the futures game for three hours, which then affected the amount of time I had to work on my mock draft. So kind of a crazy week. I worked. I know that Saturday between the rehearsals and the Futures game and the mock draft, my computer crashing, I think I worked like pretty much a 22 hour day. That was the night before the draft. And then so that was a little crazy. Um, And my voice is still not, I don't think, 100 percent, but it's coming back. And one of the nice I will say, though, that the nice bonus this year with the draft in Seattle is my daughter goes to University of Washington. So I actually got to have dinner with her four times in six nights, and then the other two nights where I was too busy, I did see her at the Futures game. I did see her at the draft, so that was kind of nice. But, yeah, it was, it was pretty uh, – that's our busiest week of work by far. I mean, it, it, it doesn't really slow down that much because now we have the trade deadline and draft signings and updating all the top 30s in the next month or so, and then it will slow down. But, yeah, that's, it's kind of a crazy week
1: yeah well i'm happy you got to spend some time with some family that is uh
2: oh well hold on i gotta throw one more bonus thing and then, and then when i got home we had tornadoes on the ground yeah right over here. <laughs> so <laughs> um I, I i think i was fortunate to get out of seattle like we had a window and the pilot took it um but we sat on the tarmac for about two hours at ord which from what the looks of it was much better than being inside ord while they were on lockdown with the tornadoes coming but uh that was that was a little added bonus. Like I wanted, I just wanted to get off the plane, but but could not for a while. So
1: well, now you're with us, Jim. So it's it's I'm getting home. better. Yes, <laughs> really appreciate it. Obviously, yeah, I I love hearing the perspective of people like you doing things that they love, and I mean, it's a grind. It really is a grind. And somebody who kind of represents a grinder mentality. I don't know. That was an attempt at a segue. The White Sox first pick <laughs> at number 15, Jacob Gonzalez out of Ole Miss, a junior. I uh, saw him compete for a national title and be a part of the the championship class. Now he's a member of the Chicago White sox organization. What did you think of him falling to fifteen in the white sox decision to take him
2: yeah we we heard him might we'd heard that that maybe you know like it was an unusual year with this draft I and mean, you had five guys who were potential number one overall picks in a lot of drafts and then you had a deep crop of high school bats and a deep deep crop of college bats and they were like Guys who would go higher in a normal talent pool, somebody was going to have to fall. Like they were going to have to be guys who fell the second half, the first round. And, you know, we had heard with Jake Gonzalez that, that Tommy Troy and Matt Shaw maybe moved ahead of him from the majority of clubs and they went kind of right ahead of him at 12 and 13. You know, he was a guy who I, I want to say was fifth on our list coming into the season. Um, I actually got that pick right. <laughs> I think that was one of four picks I got exactly right in the first round. Um, I will give myself credit. If I could have updated, I did tweet. I could have had six right because I, I, I changed two, but they don't officially count according to my colleague Jonathan Mayo because I changed them the day of the draft. But um, no, he, he was interesting. He was a little bit polarizing. You know, I mean, on one hand, you have a guy who performed for three years at Ole Miss. He won a national championship. Started shortstop for two years in a row for the U.S. Collegiate National Team, and, and they don't mess around with defense. And I, you know, I think like on one hand, you know, you're getting a, an offensive performer here. I mean. He's got good back-to-ball skills. He manages the strike zone well. He got a little home run happy as a sophomore. He did a better job with that this year. He's got, you know, 20-25 homer potential. He uses the whole field. So, like the offensive side of it is really, really good. I, I think the question, and, and you know, to be fair, he was probably under the microscope more than most guys because he was identified as a top top guy, you know, well before this year. And those guys kind of get scrutinized is where does he wind up defensively? Because he's a, you know, probably 40 runner, you know, below average runner out of the batter's box. Some might say 30 runner, well below average. Um, he has good instincts, at short, um, but there's a lot of question among teams, the more I looked at him, is he a shortstop or is he a second or third baseman? Um, I do think he'll hit enough to be, you know, at least a solid regular, uh, no matter where he winds up, but the shortstop thing may be a stretch. So, um he went, you know, like I said, if you if you told the White Sox that before the season, hey, you guys are going to get Jacob Gonzalez with the 15th pick, I, I think Mike Shirley might have taken, you know, the White Sox scoundrel might have just taken that, no questions asked, if you told him that in in January. What did you guys think of the pick? Were you guys excited by the pick?
3: Yeah, I think we were. I think we were mixed. We did a live show, like Jim. I I was good with it. You know, I very much like don't get too like excited or mad over the first pick. Cause I just really believe in like the totality of the class. I need to see all of it, right? Kind no, that's of, you know, fair. to yeah. but you know, I had heard some rumblings that they might go prep that morning, but it just seemed like they were going to take the guy that fell to them. And they think Jacob Gonzalez is really good. Like I was on with Mike Shirley after and you know, I mean that, you know, that's what every team says obviously, but right. know, it seems like this one was like a pretty easy call for them at that spot.
2: Yeah, you know, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting about the high school thing, too. Like, this was a deep high school class, too. And the college class was deep. I mean, more hitting than pitching. And You know, part of that goes back to the pandemic draft three years ago when these college players, most of them were high school seniors. And you only had five rounds and you'd reduce bonus pools and you'd less picks to move money around. And there were more high school players, top high school players who wound up going to college than they would have in normal year. But, like. I have a friend of mine who, who works for another American League Central club, and he says this all the time. And other people do too. Is that everybody gets all excited about the high school players all spring, you know, upside, and they're not fresh faces, but like you haven't been scouting them for like three or four years, like the college guys. Everybody gets excited, and then the closer you get to the draft, and teams want, you know, whether you want to call it less projection or more safety, you know, after everybody's been like, oh, high school guys, high school guys, high school guys. Everybody's like, all of a sudden, they want the college guys. And, you know, and and that happened again in this year's draft. I mean, there were guys like Colin Halke and Aiden Miller, who I really liked, who we thought could go in the top 15, and they didn't. But, you know, after those first five guys went number one, I mean, I'm sorry, went one through five, the guys we thought were number one overall pick contenders. And then we knew there were three pitchers who were definitely going to go after Paul Skeens in the first round, and they all went seven to 10. Then we saw literally, College bat, college bat, college bat, college bat, college bat. High school player, college bat, college bat, college bat. bat, High school player, college bat. You, I mean, you had the run. All the almost all the college bats went like in a row, and a lot of the high school guys got pushed down a little bit. And so, like, I I was with you. I heard, you know, we I think we'd all heard the same thing. Like, I think if the right pitcher had been there at 15, the White Sox would have loved to take him. And those guys didn't get to 15. And then I heard high school bats, I heard college bats, and I kind of, you know, you know, blind squirrel finding an acorn. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know where to put Gonzalez so I mocked draft. I was like, you know, I, I think you could get to 15. It seems like that would be a good value for the White Sox. And, and you know, and, and they did. I think they. this is how you should draft. You line up your board. I mean, the money plays into it if a guy has an excessive demand or you're trying to do something. But you line up your board. And instead of saying, "Oh, we're going to take a high school X or college X or whatever," you just see who's on the board when it gets to you. And I'm sure that Jacob Gonzalez is probably higher than 15 on their board, and they were pleasantly surprised to get him there.
3: So I know that you're, you know, you're a big proponent. Obviously, you always say take the best guy, which I understand, obviously. But like, if you're a team, how much do you factor in, like, you know, say Colson Montgomery is your top prospect, and you think, you know. He he might be in the big leagues pretty soon. Like, does that influence like taking Jacob Gonzalez because he could be up near the same time as opposed to like uh, Arjun Namala or somebody like that? Like, how much should teams it, really think about that?
2: It, it does, and it it really shouldn't. I'm like the only thing I think where I can say that is if you have guys close, maybe it does a little bit, but more in the aspect of let's say you were contending and you needed a starting pitcher. Uh, you, you know, like, or you think you're going to contend next year and you're light on starting pitching and you're trying to plug a hole of a guy who thinks is going to be up real quick. But it doesn't really, because, like, the thing is, too, like I was just saying, like, you don't know if Gonzales, like, Colson Montgomery, the White Sox are very pleased with if he's, he's a shortstop, but he's a bigger guy. Colson Montgomery might not be a shortstop. Jacob Gonzalez might not be a shortstop. They're basically infielders, and you don't know how that's going to shake out. Um, you know, like like, what might look like a strength today might, will be a need in two years. So, you know, the worst thing that happens is if Colson Montgomery is a slam dunk shortstop and looks like a superstar and and, and Jacob Gonzalez is a slam dunk shortstop and you think he's a superstar, you you can always move like Jacob Gonzalez to second base or, or move Montgomery to third or whatever. But even let's say you had – your infield was locked up. You, you just have no spot for both of them. If they're both great – if you if you're picking the best guy and he winds up developing into what you think he's going to be, at the worst thing you do is you trade them for something so um I, I don't think you really worry about you know having too much even if you had like your six best prospects were all shortstops or your your six best prospects were all outfielders like the outfield thing would be tough but like theoretically you could play three guys in the outfield and maybe one of them plays first and one of them dhs or you know your infielders you move them around and some of those guys can go to the outfield you know you, you just worry I think about getting the most talent possible and and, and sorting it out when they're ready because even Even if Colson Montgomery, let's say he's ready next year. I mean, realistically, you know, Jacob Gonzalez, like it's late 25, early 26. I mean, he might be a little quicker than that, but like it's not like Jacob Gonzalez is going to be ready like a year from now. So you you have time to figure all that stuff out.
3: So, Jim, you know, I think the second rounder is is really interesting to me, Grant Taylor. So it, it does seem to be like a theme in Shirley drafts where they prioritize like these looks where like he saw Garrett Crochet like in the fall and loved what he saw. And, you know, then we all saw kind of what happened just like during that season where he didn't pitch a ton and, you know, Noah Schultz was here like in their backyard and they basically sat on him for 19 innings or whatever in the post like draft conference. He he very much talked about just like what Grant Taylor looked like in the fall and him going toe to toe with skeins. And he told the media that he thinks they got two first rounders that night, you know, and I guess, you know, it's, one of those things scouting directors say, but what are what are your <laughs> thoughts on the, on the Taylor pick? Well,
2: well I do think it's fair. I mean, yeah. I mean, look like the scouting directors are excited about their draft, you know, like, so like, but, but I, I don't think that's wrong. Like I'm not going <laughs> to say, I don't think Mike was saying he was like Paul Skeens either. I mean, nobody's Paul Skeens, but, but he was, I mean, in the fall, everybody thought this guy had a potential to be a first round pick if he came out and did in the spring. I mean, he was, 93, 95, and hit 99 with late life fastball gets a little straight when he throws it harder. Um, he had a, you know, West Johnson, our pitching coach, who, who has moved on and, and actually become the head coach of my alma mater, Georgia. So I'm happy, but West happy with that. But Wes Johnson's known as one of the better pitching coaches. Helped him come up, you know, refine a, a sharp, he had a, like a low 90s cutter that was a plus pitch, down a curveball, tight slider. Hadn't thrown much of a changeup. Um, pitched really well in the Cape. Threw a lot more strikes. Threw strikes in the fall. So, yeah, I think had he been healthy and, you know, pitched like he had in the Cape and pitched like he did in the fall, he would have been a first round. It's kind of like Peyton Paulette, you know, who they took last year. Peyton Paulette would have been a first round pick had he been healthy, but he but he wasn't. He got hurt. And I think he got hurt. Paulette got hurt at the end of his sophomore year, but didn't have surgery, I think, till. Right before the season started last year, if I remember correctly, right? Does that sound right?
1: Yeah, it does. like I think
2: they tried to rehab him, and he got blew out in January. And that's right. about when Taylor blew out, so kind of a similar timetable. But yeah, I mean, I think they're looking at that as a potential. You know, we got a first round value in the second round, and you know, look, it's Tommy John. You feel pretty good about that. I, I think that's a good a good gamble to take. Um, like, like I, I think that makes some sense.
1: I want to stay with pitching here, Jim, because in the you know the next round, Seth Keener out of Wake Forest is an interesting case—a guy who was beginning the season in the bullpen largely because the rotation was filled out with a lot of talented arms, but due to circumstances, Keener found himself late in the rotation and pitched very well. I'm encouraged by the sample size. The White Sox want to develop Keener as a starter, and uh, you know, on top of the Grant Taylor pick, how would you believe that the pick? infuses some life into the White Sox farm system regarding their arms.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with both those guys. Both, both of those guys adding to, like, what's a need because they haven't had a lot of success developing pitching. They don't have a lot of advanced pitching. We've seen how Jonathan Cannon from last year's draft has moved very quickly so far. And I agree. I, I mean, even when Keener was, like, beginning of the year as a reliever and I think he gave up something like three earned runs in his first 43 innings and, you know, he ranked among the Division One league. He was second, I think, to Paul Skeens and Whip and third and opponent average. Like, even when he was a pure reliever earlier in the year, guys were like, this guy can start as a pro, this guy can start as a pro. The scouts kept saying that. I mean, he's got multiple p- – I mean, his best pitch is a slider. Like, it's, it's a mid 80 slider with two-plane depth that he commands well. But he's got a 91-97 mile-hour fastball with riding action. Probably won't throw, you know, like 96-97 as much as a starter. He's got a changeup that's effective. He's got a sound delivery. He throws strikes. Um – you know, I, I think the one thing you want to see, you know, because we didn't get to see a lot of it is can he keep that stuff? Can he keep his stuff deep in the games, pitching every fifth day over the course of a pro season? But, yeah, I, I think he definitely has starter traits. And and I like that one. I, I think he's a guy. And, like, the thing I like about, too, it's a fall. Like, there's a nice fall. Like, if he doesn't make his as a starter, I think the slider alone is going to make him an effective big league reliever. So, like, I think he comes with a high floor also. If the starting thing doesn't work out, you know, and you might have a, a seventh or eighth inning reliever there if it's not a starter so I I like both those guys it'll be you know I haven't I haven't really thought yet but I gotta I guess start doing this next week where all these guys are going to fit into the top 30 but I think all three of those guys will probably rank yeah I mean I would think top 10 off top my head but I gotta see how I I haven't worked it through in my mind where guys are, are are gonna fit in there either so
1: yeah, I think that's totally fair and appreciate the insight because, you know, we're trying to latch on to some optimism and there is some, I think, in the way that they're developing arms. So I think this encourages uh, those feelings. And, you know, moving on, when we think about this draft, I think a lot of White Sox fans will reference the George Wolkow pick, those who are really paying attention, because, you know, out of Downers Grove North, uh, the kids just massive, six seven listed 230 coming into the draft. How significant was the pick of of Wolcott by the White Sox? And what do you think of him as a player?
2: Yeah, I I was shocked by that pick just because, so like on on day two of the draft, we have a minute for every pick and we're, we're comments just like, bam, 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 bam. And so like after, like we start to get to the point where teams are drafting college seniors, you know, who are going to sign for, Mm -hmm. you know, five, you know, like the White Sox did in in the 10th round, they took Zach Franklin out of Missouri. And he's gonna probably cost five thousand dollars or thereabouts, and they'll divert, you know, bonus pull money to help sign some other guy. And and so anyway, like I think Jonathan Mayo, who, I, who my partner at, at MLB.com, we split the country in half, and I think he got hit with a couple seniors in a row. So he was, we'll sit there because we want to tell people about the players. If we don't know about the guy, instead of just going, hey, we don't know about player X, we'll sit there and text scouts and find out about him. So Jonathan was doing that, and I and I used the opportunity to fill in and say, hey, look. We're at the point in the draft where, like, all the high school guys who are going to get paid uh, have been taken. Like, like you know, and, 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 like, it was funny. I rattled off Cooper Pratt and George Wolkow. This was early in the sixth round. And I swear to God, like, a couple weeks later, <laughs> the Brewers take Cooper Pratt. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, how that happened. So then we, we take a break after round six. We come back, and it happens again with George Wolkow. Like, I, like, I thought, and we'll see what he gets. I mean, I thought it was going to take you know, a seven-figure signing bonus, and I think it probably will, to sign him. Um, And so I was not expecting to see him taken in the seventh round because my rule of thumb is anybody who's taken the top ten rounds, I mean, you might have a guy fail physical or something, or there might be some kind of, you know, contractual snafu that comes up where you guys weren't on the same page about what a player's going to sign. But if you're taking the first ten rounds, the team expects to sign you. They aren't aren't taking you not to sign you. Because, like, if the White Sox don't take Walcow, I mean, if they don't sign him, it is only a seventh-round pick, but they don't get that pick back you get compensation picks if you don't sign guys in top three rounds. But so if you're going to take a gamble on a guy you're not sure about, you would take it in the first three rounds so you could get the pick back if you don't sign him. And so anyway, I I was shocked that they, that they got Wolkow, and he's, he's super interesting. I mean, he's one of the youngest guys in this draft. He reclassified from 2025, I mean, 2024 to 2023. We've got him listed, I think officially at six seven two thirty nine. Like he's one of the youngest and most physical guys in this draft. And he's, a pretty good athlete for that size like an average runner once he gets going um and, you know you, you look at that frame there's strength there's leverage he's still growing um there could be huge power now obviously if you're six seven you're gonna have a naturally long swing because you're gonna have long arms so there's a little bit of a concern with that but huge amount of upside and really impressed that they got him in the seventh round and we saw that there was a handful of teams that did this this year where instead of taking those guys early up where, I mean, again, you get the pivot. But, like, I, my guess is they know what it's going to take to sign Wolkow and they accounted for it when they moved, you know, by who they drafted. Is instead of taking him, like, where he might naturally fall, like, say, in the third Let's say you had to have Grant Taylor, but, like, you like okay, Wolkow. Like, his price tag's high enough. And you're the only one meeting it. You know he's going to go late. So you go take a Seth Keener and a Calvin Harris and a Christian Apoor. Etc. And you take the other guys you want because, you know, you can get will Cal because of his price tag kind of wherever you want him. We, we saw teams finesse that stuff a little bit more this year than they have in the past. So, I mean, that could be a great pick. But that was that and the Cooper Pratt pick to the Brewers in the sixth round. I was just like, wow, like how did how did
3: this happen? Yeah. I mean, to your point there, you know, Mike Shirley, you know, gave all the credit to JJ Lally, just basically knowing the kid and he played on his area code team and, you know, he's been playing the Northwoods league and they, you know, they've been there or whatever. So it does kind of seem like they kind of knew that he didn't, he didn't really want to go to South Carolina. And it's kind of like, Hey, like this is the amount of money we have. Like we're willing to take you and sign you yes or no type thing. And you know, there was a local uh, reporter here that does high school stuff. Josh Welge, like, you know, knows the family got on the phone with them immediately. And basically within 15 minutes was like, Oh, he's signing. And obviously, you know, I, I agree with you seventh round. I assumed they were getting it done too, but it was surprising like at that point of the draft that, cause I, I was kind of waiting for them to, you know, like up a poor or whatever we're going to opera. We're going to ask you about, but it just seemed like they had money for a swing somewhere with how their early draft went, but I still yeah, wasn't I really expecting it. But- it.
2: I think they save money in rounds four through six. Like, I, I think they'll save some money there. Like, I'll be curious to see. Like, I don't know what his price. Like, my guess is, honestly, Grant Taylor, you probably save some money too, um, because I, I just don't know that he's gonna command full slot coming
3: off. Time. I bet they're close to the same thing. Like late second, like one point two something in that. Yeah, range.
2: but which still saves you four fifty. So then, like, like I, I'll bet you Will Kyle gets seven figures. I, I, I would, and and I think it'd probably be. We'll see. I, I'm just speculating here, but I don't think it's just going to be a million dollars either. But like, yeah, I mean, the fact that he reclassified and he went to go play in the Northwoods League to show scouts more, like that's kind of shades of Noah Schultz going to the prospect league last year where, you know, there was some thought like, oh, Noah Schultz wants to go to Vanderbilt. He only pitched four innings because he had, you know, mono, like he's not going to be signable, blah, blah, blah. And then Noah Schultz goes to pitches in the prospect league. And you don't do that if you're just going to go to college. And so I think, I think that was a pretty clear sign if George Wolkow was just going to go to South Carolina. He probably doesn't go to up to Green Bay and play in the Northwoods League.
0: There's no Ion team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. That's indeed.com slash wire sports and support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash wire sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: So you brought it up on the broadcast, Jim, the Christian opera thing with the A's and Mike Shirley confirmed it in his media session. So it's actually kind of funny. Like I remember this, I talked to Shirley after day two last year, and they were very confident, you know, just, oh yeah, we have a guy in the 11th tomorrow that we really like, <laughs> you know, whatever. Right. And then, so that ended up being Jacob Burke. And I just assumed that like Jacob Burke was the guy they were talking about, but they were actually talking about Jacob. Yeah. And he's been guy. good, but they were actually talking about a poor and then Oakland takes him, doesn't sign him. So they take him here in the fifth. What are your, uh, just your thoughts on the player? Obviously another Midwest kid, a Wisconsin prep last year.
2: Yeah, I mean Mike Shirley and company don't get beat in their own backyard. And, you know, so Poor was the best pitching prospect Wisconsin in Wisconsin last year. He's athletic. He's projectable. I think, he, you know, you'd see upper 90s fastball times. And everybody kind of knew he didn't have good grades, so he wasn't going to a four-year school. And, like, I, I want to clear this up. This is one of my biggest pet peeves because I've heard this. Even we've said this, and it's not true. Everybody talks about, oh, the A's took him as a draft and follow because the draft and follow rules back. Like, the A's took him and let him go to Gulf Coast Community College, and they were going to try to sign him. That's 100% not true. The A's did not take him as a draft and follow. Like you pointed out and like I pointed out, they had to deal with the White Sox. Now, look, that doesn't mean that everybody has to let him get to the White Sox. I think there was another team that was going to do something similar if he got to them. The A's kind of screwed that up. The A's didn't take him to be a draft and follow. The A's took him. The A's also didn't sign their 10th round pick, something similar, where they didn't really nail down what it was going to take to sign the kid, Brock Rodden, who wound up being, a, I think, a 5th round pick to... The Mariners, as, a money, as, a, as one of the better seniors in this year's draft. But it, the A's were not taking Christian Apport as a draft to follow. The A's just kind of botched that one, and it kind of blocked the White Sox. like, when everybody's like, oh, he's an A's draft to follow, I was thinking there's a zero, well, I shouldn't say zero percent chance he signed with the A's. I'm sure if the A's gave him more money than he was going to get in this year's draft, he might have signed with them. But he wasn't going to sign with the A's. And, like, you know, this was a guy, like you said, you know, and, and Mike Shirley acknowledged that they, they've liked him uh, for a while. Yeah, you know, he, he can hit 98 miles an hour with fastball. He, you know, has four pitches. Yeah, he, he's still kind of a, a bit of a project, but you just don't see lefties with that kind of arm strength. Um, and again, you know, this was a guy who wanted to go to pro ball a year ago and he kind of got, I mean, he could have, if he wanted to do it at a, I guess, a cut rate price with the A's um, and he didn't want to. So, um I, I, I'm ranting here. I just get tired of people talking about how he was a draft and follow. Technically, he was a draft and follow because he went to junior college. But, like, that's not why the A's took him. The A's didn't take him to evaluate him at at Gulf Coast Community College. Like, there were teams, everybody knew what kind of army he had. And it's just the A's kind of got in the way of the White Sox. So it was kind of interesting um, that they came back and got him this year in, in round five.
3: Jim, he's so he, Mike, hey so he kind of laughed about it in the press. Like, you know, like I feel like Shirley didn't want to like throw another team under the bus, but he's like, oh, I thought we had a deal. Like, you know, he was just. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Teams, teams will try not to throw other teams under the bus. But like, and again, I mean, I will say, I mean, the whole notion of, hey, team, this other team's going to pay us more. Don't draft my guy. Like, like, I don't subscribe to that. If I'm a team, I can draft who I want and we'll try to sign the guy. And if we don't, we don't. Like, you, like, you can't, like, I, I get that. But I think the A's, the a, like, again, and the A's weren't trying to block the White Sox. I just think the A's had a misguided uh, thought as to what it was going to take to sign Christian a poor, and they kind of screwed that one up.
1: This is why we love having you, Jim. It's so much fun uh, to hear that kind of one-of-a-kind insight. And uh, a few more from us. I want to take you to Calvin Harris, because in 2022, Ole Miss won the national tournament. and. I'm thinking, you know, Jacob Gonzalez, Tim Elko, now Calvin Harris are a part of the White Sox organization. Is there anything to that? Would you kind of dissect any reasoning behind, you know, Mike Shirley committing to three Ole Miss players in two draft classes who were a part of the national title team?
2: You know, you'd have to ask him that. I think it might be more coincidence than anything, just from the standpoint of one, they obviously had a talented team because they won the national title. And if you just look at the way it break down, like Tim Elko, who famously tore his ACL and kept playing through a torn ACL. Elko had some of the best makeup in last year's draft. If I remember correct, he was like a discount money saver so they could afford other guys. But like he was like a classic discount money saver, if that makes sense, just because of the makeup and the performance. Jacob Gonzalez we talked about. They were kind of right place, right time to get Jacob Gonzalez. And then Calvin Harris – I think it's just a case that there were not many catchers in this year's draft. And I'm not saying they specifically say, hey, we got to get a catcher in the fourth round, but he was one of the better catchers, you know, in in the draft. Like, you know, he's, you know, I've heard mixed reviews on his defense. Like he's improved as a receiver, but needs more work. He, teams have run wild on him behind the plate. He had Tommy John before his freshman season. And his, his throws have been, I've got grades anywhere from like, 30 to 55 on his arm this spring um, he did have a four homer game he makes a lot of hard contact but I but I honestly think on that one like like on the old Miss guys I think it's just I, I think it's more coincidence than anything I mean look they've taken a lot of players from top college programs I mean just look at this year's draft their first four picks were three guy well Grant Taylor wasn't on the team this year because he was hurt but basically Three guys who were on national championship clubs the last two years. And Seth Keener was on a team that finished third and was number one in the country. I mean, they're obviously hitting the premier college programs very hard. And I think it just, like I said, kind of more coincidence that three of those guys in the last two years have been old Miss guys.
3: Jim, your, your colleague Jonathan Mayo mentioned Jake Peppers as the best pick of the ninth round. I know he was, you know, ranked for you guys. What can you tell us about him out of Jacksonville State?
2: Yeah, he's interesting. Like he's listed six three one sixty, but like pretty good arm strength. Like he'll he'll be ninety three ninety five for several things at time. He'll touch ninety eight, and it's got one of those fastballs. It's got like a flat approach angle and really good carry. You, you look at the body, and, and you're hoping maybe you could add some more strength to him. Um, he's got two plane slider that gets a ton of swings and misses. He doesn't use a changeup very often, but it, but his changeup has some fade and sink. and it looks pretty interesting. It was weird, like. Jacksonville State kind of bounced him back and forth between the rotation and bullpen this spring, which is never good for anybody. Um, he wound up, like, pitching against SEC teams in midweek games, allowed one run in, in nine and two-thirds innings with 11 strikeouts. Had some success as a full-time starter at the end of the season where they kind of stopped bouncing him around. He went to the Cape and performed well. I think that's a, a great ninth-round pick. Like, I mean, I'm not picking – I mean, like, I liked him more than I liked Lucas Gordon, who they took in the sixth round. I, I take him, honestly, over Christian Apoor in the fifth round. We had him ranked ahead of Apoor and Gordon. Um, and I'm kind of surprised he lasted as long as he did. I don't know if he – I don't know if it's a case where he was asking for more money and then he slid a little bit and they came off the price tag and they found a way to make it work or, or how exactly that happened. I, I like him a lot. Like, And, again, I haven't plotted out in my head, okay, who's making the top 30, who's not. Jake Peppers might sneak on to the top 30. I mean, my guess is I'll probably not that it's their list, get talked out of it because he's a ninth round pick. But I like Jake Peppers a lot. I I think that's a a tremendous value in the ninth round. And it's not like a George Wolkow, he's asking for a million dollars, you know, he falls. That was just one where he, he fell in the ninth round for some reason.
3: Day three is always interesting to me, especially like rounds 11, 12. You see the slightly over slot bonuses or whatever. Mike Shirley went on and on in the in the press conference about Riku Nishida, who they took in round 11. And then Matthias Lacombe seems interesting to me. It's another uh, John Kazanis guy from Arizona. I saw the story on MLB.com just about how he wants to be the first uh, French-born player to the big leagues. What can you tell us about those two guys? And then I guess anybody else that you think is interesting on day three that they took.
2: Nishida, I don't like both those guys were in, in, in Jonathan's half of the country. So, like, I haven't ever really talked to anybody about Nishida. I mean, I know he's kind of a smaller second baseman. You know, it's hit over power, a little spark plug type guy who's interesting. You know, it's funny. I, I actually got tipped off about Lacombe, I think back in March or April. Um, you know, just about his background. You know, he pitched for, the, he was on France's World uh, Baseball Classic team. And, you know, he's, he can run the fastball in the mid 90s. He, you know, has some feel for slider. It just sounds like kind of a very int- intriguing work in progress, honestly. So, you know, both those guys were typical. You know, they didn't go too crazy um, after the tenth round. I mean, they they did have a couple guys who are on the radar in my half the country. The the Carlton Perkins kid that got out of Cali County is interesting. Um, you know, he has a fastball. He can run up to 95 or 96. He has an average slider that gets swings and misses um curveball too like he's got good breaking stuff he's athletic i think he pitched well in the draft league i think that helped him so he was he was one guy on my radar and then their their last pick and i don't like i don't know the signability of a, a college guy that they took in the 20th round but garrett wright at, at tcu was one of their top relievers his fastball's up to 97 his sliders up to 87 he's got better command of the slider than the fastball um And he's kind of like, there's a, there's not much finesse to him. He just kind of throws hard um, and and goes right after you. But those were a couple more guys late who were, who were a little bit interesting.
1: So overall, Jim, how would you rank the White Sox draft class? Did they do a good job?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think they did. I mean, look, I mean, if your draft doesn't look good on draft day, that's a problem. But like, I look at it, like they got, I think they got really good value with their top three picks, you know, Jake Gonzalez, you know, like I said, under the microscope and, and teams, you know, were, you know questioning the position a little bit, but that was a guy they wouldn't have thought you were going to get a 15. I think Grant Taylor, you know, once he gets healthy and Seth Keener, both are, you know, could be better players than where they were picked. Um, I thought, you know, the wool cow pick, I, I love the wool cow pick. Uh, the Jake Peppers picks really good. I I think it looks like a very solid effort right now. And again, I haven't, kind of plotted out in my head where all these guys are going to go. But just in terms of our top 30, I mean, and you guys, I mean, I don't think that their system looks particularly strong right now. Um, But like Gonzalez is going to rank, you know, I would think probably two or three on the top 30 when, when we update it. And because Coloss is going to graduate before then, you know, Grant Taylor will make it. Seth Keener will make it. Calvin Harris will make it. Will make it kind of feel like Pepper should make it. I don't know if a poor will make it. We may let him go out and pitch a little bit because he got, you know, he still is very raw, but I mean, that could be, you know, and again, part of that's a product of of who's on their current list, But, but there could be six guys from this year's draft jumping onto their top 30 immediately.
3: As it's trending, Jim, looks like the White Sox could have a potential top five pick next year. I guess just, you know, how, how is that class stacking up? Seems like a lot of like college players at the top again. Yeah. I mean, it's early. I know. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, it's early. I mean, it, it does look that way. But, yeah, I mean, it's not – next year's draft will not be as deep as this year's draft um, just because, again, I think the pandemic played into it. But, yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at how they draft a well, I mean, I guess they did take Colson Montgomery. But, yeah, I mean, if you, if we were trying to project out the top five, I think it, it would be a lot of – I mean, hey, like, here's one for you. Like, so if uh, if they go – if they stay, like, not that they would, but I'm just thinking, like, they obviously scout our region that we're in very well. Maybe Brody Brecht from Iowa is, like, the first guy who jumps to mind. I mean, they're not going to make it a geographic pick, but I'm, I'm sure they're, they're all over Brody Brecht, who's, who's one of the best pitchers in next year's draft.
3: Yeah, and I think they're they're not going to be afraid to take like a college pitcher. You know what I mean? Where there's like a lot of teams that you hear about that just would prefer a bat or whatever. I don't I don't think they would have any issue if there's like a bunch of pitchers on the board, they'll just take one of them.
2: No, and I, I kind of felt like this year, honestly, that had like we knew what was going to happen, but had Rhett Lowder from Lake Forest who went seventh, or Chase Dolander from Tennessee who went ninth, and maybe even Noble Meyer, the best high school pitcher in the draft, who went tenth. Like if one of those guys had gotten the fifteen, especially one of those two college guys, I think they would have taken them. Um, but they they did they did what you should do, which is which is you know let the draft play out and take the best guy. You can't you don't want to force a pitcher because you want a pitcher. And I think you know, had they taken. I'm trying to think. Was Hurston Waldrop the next pitcher taken? Like yeah. Yep. Waldrop was okay, but, like, you saw Waldrop went 24th, and, like, yeah, there were a number, number, number of other teams who had been interested in pitchers and didn't take one. Um, so, I mean, I don't think forcing Waldrop would have been the would have been the best move there.
1: Jim, as we look back at the 2023 draft, I'll remember the first round going Skeens won and Max Clark to the Tigers. What were some of the takeaways that you had that stood out to you covering this draft?
2: And, you know... Like, well, one, I think the biggest thing that you, know, you always hear, we always talk about how it's not just ability, it's signability. And they both matter, and teams juggling money with bonus pools. And after all that, and there was talk, you know, some teams not want high school outfielders in top five, the five best players, all whom would have been legitimate candidates to go number one in most drafts, went one through five. So I thought that was good. Like Like, I just hate it when teams start playing games with money and the best players don't go at the very top. So that was that. And then I'll be honest, I mean, I don't want to sound all <laughs> pompous or arrogant here, and I'm not claiming I went 28 for 28 in my mock draft. But honestly, there weren't, I didn't think a lot of surprises. I mean, virtually every player who went in the first round was, I, I think, it's like tied to the team we had taken him at most points. I mean, maybe we didn't have Namalas sliding all the way to 20 but we knew Aiden Miller, who won 27th, was gonna slide. We even heard Bryce Matthews to the Astros a little bit. Um so even though teams weren't sure like exactly who was gonna wind up on their board, you know, like with their pick when they got, you know, just like we were talking about with the White Sox, I didn't really think there were that many big surprises, at least not to me. I mean, granted, <laughs> I'd immersed myself in the draft for several weeks, talking to teams, talking to agents, trying to sleuth out where guys were going. But I, I I didn't really see any pick where it's like, oh, my gosh, where'd that come from type of thing. Like like I said, Bryce Matthews was probably – well, he was the lowest ranked guy on our list who won the first round. He was the last pick. And even then, we'd heard Bryce Matthews to the Astros a couple weeks earlier. yeah
1: I mean, Jim, you're locked in.
2: You know, there's no
1: <laughs> better place to go than MLB Pipeline. And with that being said, looking ahead to the deadline, I mean, it's kind of cruel to go from covering the draft so heavily and then also being a part of All-Star Week. Uh, than to totally flip your mindset to anticipating the trade deadline. So how are you doing with that? Are you ready for it? And also, you know, related to the White Sox, figure they're going to sell. Uh, maybe you could speak on potentially the future of the White Sox a little bit.
2: Yeah, well, I, I'm somewhat fortunate with the trade deadline because I don't have to sit there and, and, unlike the draft, sleuth out who's going where and, you know, where's Lucas Giolito getting traded and what can they get back? It's more of a react thing. Like if Lucas Giolito gets traded to the Dodgers, and actually do our Dodgers list, that would be in great shape. (laughs) Like we will move the Dodgers prospects onto the White Sox list. I'll have to replace the guys on the Dodgers list. I will help Scott Merkin, who covers the White Sox for us. Hey, here's what I've got on these Dodgers guys. But it's more um, reacting and helping our beat writers with the coverage. Or if um, Scott Merkin, like I don't know if he's doing a, Here's where Lucas Giolito could get traded story. But if he is, Scott might reach out to me and say, hey, I'm hearing the Dodgers. What do you think the Dodgers might be willing to give up? Or I've heard these names. How good are they? So so on the trade deadline, I don't have to try to predict and and figure all those things out. It's more when the trade happens, I have to tidy up any of the prospect lists I do and then assist the the beat writers with, you know, putting in perspective how good the prospects are. You know, and, and Jonathan Mayo does that. And Sam Dykstra does that. We split up the thirty organizations, so I don't have to. um I, I don't have to spend hours like calling everybody, know, hey, where's Lucas Giolita going? Um, so I can more react to it. So it's it's good from that standpoint. But yeah, I mean, look, the White Sox could. I mean, we saw it before. I mean, they built a, a, a very strong farm system and, and a couple playoff appearances, which I believe are still the only time they've ever made back-to-back playoff appearances in franchise history you know, largely off trading, you know, Chris Sale and, and Adam Eaton, and uh, I'm forgetting one of the big trades they made. But they
3: Quintana, they, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, they, you know, they they made a bunch of trades and if they go total, you know, everybody, everybody, you know, can go, like I, I saw recently this report, like all but four players are, are not untouchable. They're all touchable. <laughs> um, You know, you can make some major moves and, and we could see, you know, the, the the top three, like between the draft and trades, the top thirty prospects list could look a lot different when it when we have it updated I think early august i we're either updating it. I think it's going to be more early August than before the end of July but um we we could see that top thirty list look you know entirely different than it does right now,
3: so before we let you go then um th- there's a lot of speculation here, just like on like what do the white Sox want to be next year like as far as like that that's what'll like guide their process essentially looking at the the mlb draft lottery rules and i look i know these aren't like written in stone anywhere but like the interpretation is like say the white Sox land a top five pick in next year's draft like in this lottery the following year they can't pick higher than 10th so like should that influence like how bad you know, your big league team should be next year. I know this is a new thing. Like, should that matter? Should you not rebuild because as a big market club, you can't pick up their multiple years in a row?
2: No, I mean, I think you should rebuild if you, I mean, look, I'm not running the White Sox, but they're, as we record this, what, 38 and 55? Like, yes, like you have to be very optimistic to say, hey, we could just make a couple changes and run this team back and we're going to be good next year. I mean, you do have... You know, AL Central is not formidable, so you know you do have that. But like, I don't know how anybody can look at this White Sox team and say, "Hey, we just have a bunch of guys all having bad years at the same time. We'll we'll be good next year, and we'll stay healthier, and you know maybe we'll add a pitcher, and and then all be right." Like they kind of tried to do that going into this year, and it hasn't worked out, and the team's gotten worse. So I don't know. I think you got to rebuild when you rebuild. The one thing I need to figure out, I do have most of that rules figured out. So. As a non small market team, and I think that's determined by whether or not you receive revenue sharing money. I don't have the list of teams, but the White Sox it's essentially if you don't get the competitive balance picks, I think is is basically the same teams that are considered, you know, bigger revenue, bigger market teams. So yes, if the White Sox win the lottery, then in two thousand twenty five they can't pick they can't participate in the lottery and they can't pick in the top ten. So even my my understanding of the rule, and I don't know how this part works, is is what happens if the White Sox don't win the lottery? Let's say the White Sox finish with the top finish right now. They're what, the fifth worst record in baseball? Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay, so here's what I don't understand. the the part I need to get straight out. So I I do know if the White Sox win the lottery, and let's say they win the third pick next year, or they just stay at five, and then they get a lottery pick next year, which is the top six picks, then they can't pick in the top ten in 2025 but nobody has seen this exact rule written down. Here's the part I don't understand. Let's say the White Sox don't win the lottery next year and they come in and they have the eighth pick. I believe the way the rule is written is they can't pick in the top 10 two years in a row, but I'm not sure that that's, if that matters, if it's a non-lottery pick. I'm I'm unclear on that.
3: I think it's only if a team ends up picking top six. Like, so it's, so like Washington next year can pick 10th, basically. And I, and I think it's because, you want to guarantee those three bottom teams? Like well, no, Washington, picks, picks can't seven, pick eight.
2: Well, Washington, Washington can't pick in the top 10 next year.
3: No, I know, but I think they can pick 10. I think that's the highest they can pick.
2: I don't think you, I don't think you can pick in the top 10. I think they can okay. pick 11. Gotcha. But what I'm okay. saying is, what if you lose the lottery, but you wind up with a top 10 pick? Can you pick in the top 10 back-to-back years? Because I think the way the rule's written, like it's unclear whether, you, whether it only matters if you win the lottery or if you can't have a top 10 pick in back-to-back years.
3: Yep, it's. Uh, we need it, to see. It, it would be. It but, would be great if you could find that somewhere. If it's, I, I know, it's I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna, down. Have to yes. follow, yeah. I'm
2: gonna have to follow up because I am totally confused on that. But but in any case, to get back to the premise of your question, no, that shouldn't really affect it because whether you pick fifth versus eleventh or whatever in 2025, you shouldn't avoid rebuilding. Now, I mean, it would sting obviously if, let's say, the White Sox just blow it all up and they have the, like, I mean, there is a scenario where they could have the worst record in baseball in 2024 and not be able to pick until not be able to have a top 10 pick in 2025. And that would be harsh. Um But I don't think you can look at it that way from a rebuilding standpoint. I mean, you, you got to do what's best for the long-term vision of the team, regardless of whether you qualify for pick X in a given year. I, I could see if you were on the bubble, like, let's say this was a 500 team and, and you felt like it was getting old and you weren't sure about running it back. But I mean, this is a bad team right now. Like, so I don't see how, like if you delay rebuilding because of that, it just seems to me that, okay, like, so in 2025, I can't pick in the top 10 or whatever, probably. Like, like you're going to get to 2025 and we're going to be on doing our post draft press conference. And you guys are going to be asking me like, Okay, now is it time to rebuild? And the answer is going to be yes. It was time two years ago. Like, like I'm not saying you have to just tear it down to the studs, but if you're 38 and 55, and 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 you weren't very good last year, like this team's trending in the wrong direction. And I don't, I mean, I mean, how many guys are you looking at who are, you know, under 20, you know, you know, under 25, 26, and having good seasons this year? I mean, you got. What? Robert, Jimenez, and Vaughn? That's it, right? And then on the pitching side, you have no pitchers that young. Like your best pitcher is Giolito, who probably isn't coming back as a free agent next year. Well, I mean, you have Cease. Giolito's having a better year. It's like you, you have Cease to hold on to, but, you know, I mean, they're not – it's not like, hey, we just need to get a couple guys healthy, and and we're going to be fine in 2024.
1: You're on it, Jim. That's uh, essentially how we all feel as White Sox fans right now. Thanks so much for your time and being a friend of the Future Sox podcast. We really appreciate everything you do for us.
2: Oh, no, I, I enjoy coming on. You guys ask good questions. It's always it's always fun. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to contemplate how many of these draft guys will actually make the top 30. Of, and although, to be honest, it probably is tied to what they do at the trade deadline, too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we're looking forward to it. And you can follow all the updates from Jim Callis and his team at MLB Pipeline, MLB.com. That's Jim Callis for James Fox. My name's Mike Rankin. We release episodes every Tuesday of the Future Sox podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next week.